freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I Paul tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again I declare to every man who lets himself to be uh, circumcised that he will be required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to uh, be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumstances, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence on the cross has been abolished, as for those agitators. I wish they would go to the whole way and escalate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be three, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to one's flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Amen. Uh, Before I hand over to John, uh, we're just going to sing one more song. Everybody. Do, um, if you've closed your Bibles, try and find Galatians chapter 5 again. 
We'll be spending, I think, most of our time in that little bit of the uh, in that little bit of Galatians. <clears throat> Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word now. Father, thank you so much for all that we've been reminded of already this morning. The extraordinary good news of Jesus, who he is and all that he's come to do, and how even now he is ruling and reigning on the throne, exercising his ministry as prophet, priest, and king. And I pray that he would speak now. Will you, will you give us hearts that hear his voice? And not only hear, but respond with faith and obedience. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars. Restless by day and by night, rants and rages at the stars. God help the beast in me. So sang Johnny Cash. Any Johnny Cash fans in the house? Well, most certainly Dan Zach is a Johnny Cash fan. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're used to thinking about Johnny Cash as the kind of country rock and roll singer of the 1960s. Perhaps we know something of his story as a a drug and alcohol addict. And we may have seen the kind of uh, biopic of his life and all that kind of thing. But this is not Johnny Cash from the 1960s. This is actually Johnny Cash singing in 1994. 26 years after he'd become a Christian, having lived as a Christian all that time. This is Johnny Cash, not as a kind of drug-addled addict, but as a mature Christian believer. The beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars. Restless by day and by night, rants and rages at the stars. God help the beast in me. I wonder if you can relate to that this morning. As we kind of begin this sermon today and as we come to the end of this series, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, we have to acknowledge that there is a battle that is going on in our hearts. And Paul is absolutely clear about it, isn't he? Look at verse 17 of chapter 5. We've read this verse every week for about the last 10 weeks. (laughs) But he says this, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. There is a a war going on inside of us. There is a battle. There is a beast that is continually trying to release himself from the cage. 
And Paul says that is the normal Christian experience. That's what it means to live with a sinful nature and yet now to be born of the Holy Spirit. So look what he says in verse 25. This is our task as Christians. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. When he talks about us keeping in step with the Spirit, we've thought about it in a number of ways. But one way to think about it would be to see it as marching shoulder to shoulder with the Spirit. Keeping in step with Him. You may have seen those kind of um, amazing sort of sights of the changing of the guard and all that kind of thing. Where they're, they're marching incredibly tightly in sync with one another as they all follow the leader. Well, that's the kind of picture that we have here, that we're to walk in step with the Spirit. We're to march with Him, shoulder to shoulder. We're not to stray. We're not to slow. We're not to break rank. So how do you feel about that this morning? How's it going? How's it going? Keeping in step with the Spirit. Maybe you're sat here this morning and saying, yes, excellent. I've had an awesome week. Aren't I doing well? Even now, bubbling up inside of you is a sense of superiority. Or maybe actually you're sat there and your heart is sinking, even as you reflect on what it took for you to leave the house this morning be here. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. And maybe you too have glimpsed something of this beast that Cash is talking about. This destructive beast. You'd love to explain it. Maybe you just think, well, everybody has it so it can't be a problem. And yet you fear its capabilities. You fear the beast's capacity for evil. Well, I hope what we're going to see this morning is that self-control is absolutely central to how we say no to the beast and yes to the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, self-control is all about the Spirit giving us the power to keep this beast in check. It's all about how the Spirit is giving us that power. just want us to think, this is listed within the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now just think about that. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Just let that sink in. 
I think we automatically assume self-control is us controlling ourselves because that's what the word suggests, doesn't it? But it's actually about us being controlled not by the beast, but controlled by the spirit. It's a fruit of the spirit. Now, as we kind of think about this a little bit more... Ordinarily, when we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit, the next thing we've done is to see it in the person of Jesus or to see it in the character of God. But God does not need to exercise self-control as defined in these verses because God does not have a sinful nature that he is saying no to. However, there are many examples Bible. Just think about the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. So Joseph was rising up through the ranks in Egypt, having been taken captive and all of that. You may remember something of the story of Joseph, but he reaches this kind of pivotal moment in which he's working for a man named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife takes a shine to Joseph likes the look of him, and tries to seduce him, slinks into the room. And what does Joseph do? He runs. He runs. He legs it as quickly as he can. And in fact, we're told that he's motivated by a desire not to sin against God. And so he runs for his life. Self-control. And actually, the result of that means that he then remains pivotal in all kinds of ways in order to then be the means of the salvation of the people of God in that moment of the book of Genesis. Self-control at that moment is kind of the clincher in terms of which way the future of God's people will go. But contrast Joseph then with King David. King David glimpses Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. He likes what he sees. He looks again. He can't help himself, he would say. He ends up sleeping with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. It escalates. He effectively has Uriah, her wife, her husband, killed. And all of the kind of falling out of the devastating result of his lack of self-control means even his own children are tainted by it. When you think of the story of Absalom as well. It just shows, doesn't it, the power of self-control. How crucial it is in our lives. It's a crossroads that we face every day. And actually, it's at the end of this list, I think, because it underpins every one of these virtues. A lack of self-control will undermine every other aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. 
So if we want God's fruit to ripen in our lives, then there is an internal battle that we need to take hold of in which we say no to the beast and yes to the Holy Spirit. So, why self-control? Why is self-control so significant? Why is it in this list? Why does it finish the list? Why does it finish our series on the fruit of the Spirit? Well, because, look back with me at chapter 5, 19 to 21. Again, we've read these verses every week, so you know them well if you've been here. The acts of the flesh. This is what the beast inside of us wants to do all of the time. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then just in case we don't find ourselves in the list, he says, and the like. (laughs) I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the point is that actually if you look in the list, we're all in the list. We all find ourselves in the list. It's no good looking down the list and saying, well, I'm doing all right because I haven't performed any witchcraft this week. (laughs) Well, how are you doing on selfish ambition? How are you doing on envy? How are you doing on hatred? You see, the point is this. The battle is real for each one of us. You and I are wretched sinners. And our capacity for evil is bottomless. And I'm sorry to break this to you, but the person you will have the most trouble with throughout your life is you. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. This is a passage that is full of hope. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another. See, for the Christian, there is a new freedom. And it's not a license to follow the beast. It is a liberty to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit, if you're a Christian here this morning, has made his home in your life You are a new creation, 
And although you might not even believe it's possible, you can say no to sin. You can change. And it's my privilege to see it happening all all the time. All the time. The way that God is growing us and growing us by his Holy Spirit. But it's slow, isn't it? And it's painful and it's steady like ripening fruit. And self-control is key. Absolutely key to that growth. We need to just think a little bit more about what we mean by self-control. What is it? And that's really why I wanted Ray to read the whole of chapter 5. Because go right back to chapter 5, verse 1. Because Paul does not want us to get this wrong. As we think about what self-control is, there's a massive danger for us here. And Paul, we've got to read it in context because Paul has got an, a huge danger that he wants to kind of highlight as we go into this. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And he says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you, if you let yourselves be circumcised, that's a specific Jewish practice, but they they were trusting in that, or they were tempted to trust in this work, this action, as a thing that would justify them, a thing that would make them right before God. He says, if you let yourselves do that, Christ Verse 2 will be of no value at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race, he says. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He says there's someone in your midst. That's what he's saying. Someone in in your midst leading you astray. This has not come from God, he's saying. Verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators... I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, why is he talking so frankly, so severely? This has got to be probably the bits where he gets most angry in the Bible. Well, because we must not let anything become a new 
yoke of slavery. If Christ has set us free, we must not let anything become a new form of slavery over us. Don't turn self-control into a work. Self-control is not you controlling yourself. (laughs) It seems so weird to say that, but it can't be, can it? The fruit of the Spirit is produced not by law, but by life. So here's my temptation. I feel convicted some area of sin in my life, and I say, right, tomorrow, I am going to stop thinking about sex. I'm not going to gossip at work. I'm not going to lose my temper. Come on, John. You can do it. Here's the problem. If all we needed was a trip to the headmaster's office, why did Jesus die on a cross? If all we needed was to tell off our sinful nature, then why on earth did Jesus have to give his life to save us? cannot save ourselves. We cannot kill sin in our own lives, in our own power. So here's the difference. I want, well, this is me trying to demonstrate the difference. Imagine for a moment Phil Swinburne is cycling home from work. And he gets caught in a thunderstorm. And dear Phil, he gets soaked to the bone. And he doesn't know what to do. And he calls Laura, but Laura's busy with Amelia. He phones Liz Perham, but her phone's always engaged, so it's no good. He he tries everyone he can possibly think of. And as a last resort, he phones me. John, can you help me? Now, at that moment, what do I do? Well, here's one version. Because I'm scared of Phil, and actually because I'm more scared of Laura, and actually I'm even more scared of what they might tell you, I say to Phil, okay, Just let me finish playing on Fortnite and then I'll come and pick you up. That is not spiritual fruit. Let's just be clear about that. From the outside, it might look really good. Oh, my knight in shining armor, says Phil. I may have got a little bit carried away in the study on this one, but that is not what's going on here. 
This is a temporary act of willpower due to external pressure and driven by my own sinful desires, even though it looks like I'm doing a nice thing for Phil. That is not spiritual fruit. But what if I'm not reluctant? What if actually I'm enthusiastic as Phil picks up the phone, as I pick up the phone to Phil even? Actually, what if all of this is motivated because I just love Phil? I don't like the idea of him getting cold. I'd bring a change of clothes for him. Not that they'd fit. I make cocoa for him. I even offer a back massage, which he refuses. The point is this. There are no rules for that. You cannot legislate for that. That is only produced by love. And we don't become robots. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's not like automatic. I am now under the control of the Spirit. It doesn't work like that. It's not like that, is it? It really is my decision. It really is me saying yes or no. But it's entirely powered by the Spirit. It's a result of a new life that the Spirit has born in me. And that is what we mean when we talk about self-control here in Galatians 5. So where does that kind of power come from? Obviously, it comes from the Holy Spirit. That's what we're saying. But more precisely, how do we kind of grow in that? How do we begin to access that and unleash that power in our lives? Well, let me just read it. A couple of verses from Titus chapter 2. In fact, they're, they're on the screen. They're just there. If you can read that. This is what Paul says. He says, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That is amazing, isn't it? What he's saying is, the grace of God teaches us self-control. He teaches us how to say yes and no. Jesus teaches us self-control. That's where it comes from. Not from in here, but from, from him. And you see, the grace of God that has appeared, that offers salvation, is all about Jesus stepping into this world and moving us from being objects of his wrath, objects who deserve his judgment for the wretched beast inside each one of us. Moving us from that to being real, genuine children of God. Not objects of wrath, but children he loves. That work of salvation from 
Jesus on the cross moves us from being focused in on ourselves and in need of trusting in ourselves and looking to ourselves to looking up to him in every single step that we take. Alistair Begg, a preacher, Scottish preacher, puts it like this. He says, religion says, become by self-effort what you are not. Christianity says, become by grace what you are. Religion says, become by self-effort what you're not. But Christianity says, become by grace what you are. A child of God. Loved by him. That is the gospel. Robert Murray McShane puts it in a slightly different way. He says this. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. But every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye on you in love. And repose, that just means rest, rest in his almighty Friends, that is where the power comes from. Ten looks at Christ for every look at yourself. But where is it needed? That's the last question for us. Where is self-control needed? Everywhere. (laughs) That's basically the answer, isn't it? But as typical for John James, I'm going to take quite a long time to tell you that. Let me just read some verses from James chapter 1. I don't don't think I put them on the screen. Yes, I did. There we go. James chapter 1, 13 to 15. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So it's dis- oh, there it is again. Now, just look at it, if you can, for a moment. It might disappear again. But what he's saying is this. He's saying there's a process that's going on here as we're tempted. There's There's a journey that we're being taken on. And it begins in the head. There's a temptation that begins in the head. And then it moves to the heart. We are dragged away and enticed. 
before it then moves to the hands. It's conceived and it gives birth to sin. Head, heart, and hands. But all of it, verse 14, is by our own evil desire. Imagine there's a, there's a robbery at the local post office. There's all kinds of pieces of evidence strewn around at the scene of the crime. But the detective can't help the fact that there seems to be no explanation for how they unlocked the door and how they knew the code to the safe. And so the detective concludes it must have been an inside job. And here's our issue. Whenever we are tempted, whenever we sin, we say, it's not my fault. I couldn't help it. Why did God allow it? They shouldn't have done that to me. If only my life was different. And James says, every sin is an inside job. And it's a battle that takes place in the head and in the heart and in the hands. So how do we fight the battle in our heads? Well, John Owen, who is an old Puritan, who wrote a lot about how we grapple with sin in our lives. He says this, he says, sin always aims at its utmost. He says, whatever the sin is, it's always aiming for the worst it can possibly be. That's what he means. It's the start of a trajectory, basically. So he says, look, every unclean thought would be adultery, if it could be. Every angry thought would be murder, if it could be. Every covetous desire would be abuse, or theft, or oppression, if it could be. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, if it could be. But that is not who we are now. If the gospel is true, if Jesus is Lord, if the Spirit is in our lives, then that is not who we are now. And that temptation that drops into our mind that looks like nothing and starts down here, there's a sense in which to, to expose the lie in our minds, to battle it in our minds, all we need to do is trace the trajectory. Where's it pointing? Where's it heading? Not to entertain it, not to indulge it, but to kill it. That's the battle in our heads. 
There's the battle of our hearts, isn't there? No fish ever bites a plain metal hook. It needs a juicy worm on the end of it. And you see, that is what the beast, the beast knows that about us. The beast inside of us totally knows that we don't just wake up and have an affair or something like that. No. We're lured. We're lured. The hook has a juicy worm on the end of it. And it starts with a shared love of the latest box set or a waft of perfume or a particularly intimate private prayer time or whatever. But that's the point is that the juicy worm has got a hook on it. And that worm, all it wants us to do is love the sin more than the Savior. In a sense, every sin is an act of false worship. It's idolatry of one kind or another. And the gospel, the loveliness of Jesus, the look that... The ten looks at Christ exposes the glint of steel behind that juicy worm. It's not juicy. And it teaches us to say no. Head, heart. Sorry, this is now stopped entirely. I don't know what's going on. Head, heart. We can remember that, can't we? Head, heart, and hands. Not head, shoulders, knees, and toes. That's something else. Here's the thing. We think, and this is a real danger when we're reading the fruit of the Spirit. We think, oh, if it's the Holy Spirit, we just need to let go and let God. But Paul says... Flee. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Flee the evil desires of youth, Timothy, he says. Run for your life. Imagine Joseph. Potiphar's wife comes slinking in. And he says, oh, I think the best thing to do here would be to lie on the bed and pray. No. Run for your life, Joseph. So plan. Plan to avoid temptation. And some of us need to do that right now. It's moved from the head. Oh, it's well well into the heart. And we need to plan now to run. But here's the wonderful thing. As we battle on all these fronts, and it is a battle. The Christian life is a war zone. As we battle in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will, this is a promise, we will 
grow more like Jesus. John Stott says, God's purpose is to make us like Christ. God's way is to fill us with his Holy Spirit. So as we finish, what is step one? What is step one? Well, it's pretty close to Johnny Cash, really. God help the beast in me. Remember who you are. And learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to love the Lord Jesus. that we might love the battle to live for him. Help us to depend on the spirit and not ourselves. May we never yoke ourselves with slavery. But as you fill us and fill us again and empower us right now, May we face the battle head on and say no to the sinful nature and yes to the Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.